Okay, so for the last 18 months, possibly a little longer, we've been immersing ourselves in the most important story in the Old Testament. This is the most important, most formative tale in all of the Old Testament that uh, Jews are to gain an identity from and Christians are to find revelation about their story from. And so we've been examining in detail, some of you uh, uh, may think too much detail, but we've been examining in detail the life and times of Moses and ultimately the humiliation of the Egyptian empire, this massive, powerful, dominant force in the region uh, has been undone by Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. Now, before we uh, enjoy those final moments of relief, those final moments when uh, Israel is free, I want us to remember the early promises of Yahweh. If you've got a Bible, turn to Exodus chapter 3, verse 18. It says this, The elders of Israel, so these are the leaders uh, of the, uh, uh, the nation, they will listen to you, Moses. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us make a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. Everyone say wonders. wonders. All the wonders. And after that, he will let you go and I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people. So that you will leave, when you leave, you will not go empty handed. Every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing, which you will put on your sons and daughters. And I like this. And so you will plunder the Egyptians. And uh, what's implicit is here is not they will just plunder the Egyptians, but the women will plunder the Egyptians. It's this wonderful reversal of strength and power. At this point, Moses is an unlikely candidate. In Exodus chapter 3, he is an unlikely candidate for anything more than possibly a street uh, cleaner or uh, um, something else. He is Egyptian raised. He is a murderer. He is an outsider. He has lived in exile for 40 years and he is an 80-year-old man. He is not a, a prime candidate for the uh, leadership of Israel or for the challenging of the king of Egypt. And Moses feels inadequate. He feels inadequate in his speech. If you've ever felt not up to a job, then Moses knows what that's like. And until this burning bush moment, he's never seen a miracle. He's uh, uh, had little consciousness of God and he is happy doing his farming and looking after his family. Over the last 18 months, 
we have read how he was raised by God and he was sent by God to uh, uh, challenge the people and the Egyptians. And we've read how Israel eventually were won over by Moses and they were won over by his vision for worship beyond Egypt in finding their own place, a land uh, famously known flowing with milk and honey. Milk uh, suggesting the sort of daily provisions uh, of sustenance and honey, this rich, luxurious element that makes life so sweet. And the Egyptian uh, and the uh, Israelites have suddenly uh, uh, um, captured that vision that Moses has got. And then they approach Pharaoh, this king of Egypt, this slave maker, this powerful man, this dominant force in the area. And true to God's warning in Exodus chapter 3, the king of Egypt says no. You're not going anywhere. You are my free labor force and I get to do with you as I wish. And you are making stuff for me and I don't want my power to diminish. I don't want my, uh, uh, to lose face amongst uh, my advisors. And then God sends these wonders that we read about in Exodus chapter 3. Ten wonders to confront Egypt, ten fearful plagues visited on the land, on the livestock and the people. Again and again conditions that the Egyptians had never seen up to this point and would never see. And finally, and we read about this last week, they have this final one. This destroyer visiting the firstborn of all of those not protected by the Lamb blood on the doorpost. All those that didn't have this uh, uh, sacrificial lamb protecting their uh, uh, um, homestead, they were visited by this destroyer and saw grief and death and destruction visited on them. And finally, today, we get to that moment that this book is named after this Exodus, this departure of Israel. If you've got uh, your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 12. It says this. Exodus chapter 12, verse 31. This is just after uh, the last plague. During the night, and there's that sense of desperation and urgency during the night. This is not a decent thing to do. Pharaoh has been undone. During the night, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Up, leave my people, you and the Israelites, go. Worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you have said and go and also bless me. And the Egyptians urged the people to hurry and leave the country, for otherwise they said, we will all die. So the people took their dough uh, before the yeast was added and carried it on their shoulders in kneading troughs wrapped in, clo in clothing. The Israelites did as Moses instructed and asked Egyptians for articles of silver and gold and for clothing. And the Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people and they gave them what they asked for. And so they plundered the Egyptians. 
The Israelites journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth. There were about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. Many other people went up with them, and also large droves of livestock, both flocks and herds. With the dough the Israelites had brought from Egypt, they baked loaves of unleavened bread. The dough was without yeast because they had been driven out of Egypt and did not have time to prepare food for themselves. Um, verse 40. Now the length of time the Israelite people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of the 430 years, to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt. Because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt, on this night all the Israelites are to keep vigil to honour the Lord for generations to come. I wonder if you can hear in those, uh, in those verses the very deliberate echoes of those first promises made to Moses. I wonder if you can hear uh, in verse by verse the answer to the promises that came in Exodus chapter 3. The things that uh, God said to Moses would happen. Each and every one is ticked off. So we are left in no doubt as to both God's uh, power and his favour. He loves his people and accomplishes these uh, promises again and again. We find Pharaoh defeated and we find Israel released from slavery and we find them plundering their captors. Again and again the promises of Exodus chapter 3 are fulfilled. And before we look at other aspects of this passage, I want us to be reminded this morning that God delights in making extraordinary promises, ones that seem unlikely or unrealistic. He likes making things that seem extraordinary and he loves staying true to them and uh, uh, being faithful to the things he says in every circumstance. I do not think it was a coincidence that this was a theme in some of the uh, songs that Tim chose this morning. Again and again, we read and sung about God's promises and his faithfulness. And this is a message this morning that God uh, promises us things and he is faithful to that promise. Sometimes we can't see the fulfilment of the promises and sometimes we don't feel the promises are being fulfilled but that doesn't negate the fact that God is powerful enough to uh, fulfill them and he is faithful enough to see them through to the end. And so this morning, I think there is a call and, and uh, it sort of uh, reverberates through the songs we sung that some of us need to put down our anxiety about things we uh, think God has promised, but we're looking for the answer for them. Some of us need to put down our striving because we are trying to make, <clears throat> make true what God has said would happen in our lives. And we need to put away the fear that something isn't going to happen that God said would this morning, right at the beginning, we read from this, uh, this chapter in 2 Corinthians that said the, the victory of Jesus is certain and secure. That in uh, and through his faithfulness, there is a yes that is unequivocal, that is not gainsaid, that there is no room for doubt in. And this morning, 
there is a, a, a need for us to be assured that God is faithful. He will come through for you. It may not look like you thought it would, but he will come through for you. His nature is faithful. And so the king of Egypt lifts himself off the floor. He's been weeping over his eldest child that's died under this 10th plague. He has seen the dreams and hopes of his eldest child dashed as the corpse of his uh, eldest son lies there. He had been utterly convinced of his own power. The Pharaoh had been utterly assured that he was the most powerful man. He was convinced that his grandeur and power and force and might and influence and riches would um, hold sway, that he would win. And Yahweh, over these ten plagues, had dissolved that, and he was now undone. And so Pharaoh goes against his promise. He promised Moses, you will never come in my presence, and if you do, I will kill you. And Pharaoh is now unfaithful. Pharaoh now is weak. Pharaoh now uh, is not true to his promises and his uh, words. And he gets Moses in with that sense of urgency during the night. And uh, Moses comes into his presence without fear of death, without worry that things will go pear-shaped. And Pharaoh does what the, uh, Moses and his people have been longing for. He says, go. Go, leave us. We're done. And most telling of all is that frail request at the end. Moses, bless me. I am undone. My eldest son is passed away. My kingdom has been shattered by the power of Yahweh. Say something on my behalf. Advocate for me because there is nothing left. And scripture talks of this again and again. And church history again and again comes back to this theme. We find figures who are resistant to the good news, who refuse to hear the stories of grace and mercy, who uh, kick against the pricks of God's uh, influence. And then divine intervention comes. And they succumb to the power of gra and grace of God Almighty. They finally just go, I give in, God. My uh, strongholds against you have come tumbling down. I have no other resistance to offer. Now, there are so many different stories that I could um, offer this morning. But I want to read to you um, uh, a more subtle one. If you go to John chapter 3. It says this. So uh, the character here is Nicodemus and he's part of the opposition to the religious anarchists. Jesus and John the Baptist are upsetting everyone. They're undoing the uh, um, time-honoured traditions and they are um, basically telling the religious authority of the time, you are snakes, 
You are evil. You are doing things that are despicable and destroying the people, okay? Nicodemus should, by rights, hate Jesus and want his death at every opportunity. All his friends and family will be uh, talking badly of this Jesus who is upsetting the apple cart, upsetting the power. And it says this in John chapter 3. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He had power, authority and prestige. And he came to Jesus at night. And again, there's this undignified element to it, you know. Uh, he didn't want anyone to know where he was going. And he came to Jesus at night when none of his pharisaical mates could see him. And he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Nicodemus's life will be undone for following Jesus. He has a clear-cut faith that has been established by tradition through hundreds and hundreds of years. They have writings that explain the Torah and the prophets and uh, the Psalms. They have uh, 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 practices that they go through um, that define who they are, and Jesus undoes them. His income is threatened. He is a Pharisee. He is a leader of the people. And Jesus is bringing this new uh, covenant that is going to undo that. He has an authority over the scriptures and over the people that will be undone if he accepts Jesus. And yet he comes to Jesus secretly for the truth. For this is the source of life. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the water of life. He is the gate that leads in uh, to the fullness of light. It is an incredible and unlikely encounter that comes from this. And do you know what? Out of this unlikely uh, opposition to Jesus giving in, we get the most famous verse in the Bible. John 3, 16. And we get these immortal words, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The grace of God is irresistible. No one can stand before it. If the grace of God truly comes on, I forget your free will, forget your idea of uh, autonomous people, you will not be able to stand the grace of God. It will undo you. You will give in. You will be unable to resist the graciousness and goodness of God. All your ideas of uh, uh, choosing suddenly fritter away before the grace and goodness and blessing and mercy of God Almighty. And this morning I just want to encourage us. There are people in our lives that seem on the edge of salvation. People in our lives that we think, oh, they're just a hair's breadth away from coming into our kingdom. And then there are other people that we've written off that we said, you know what, I'm just going to spend less time with them because you know what, I'm just going to leave them to it. And the story of Pharaoh asking for blessing and for Nicodemus coming in secret should be an encouragement 
that regardless of their belligerence, regardless of their hateful language, regardless of their apparent opposition to God and anything uh, uh, Jesus-centered, the grace of God can bring them in. There is nothing so hard that the grace of God cannot shatter. And so I want to encourage you, those people that you think are far from God, that there is no hope for. That's often the ones that God delights in bringing in. Kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God because he loves them more than they could possibly imagine. I want to encourage you to pray for them. I want to encourage you to witness to them. I want to encourage you uh, to dare to believe that God's grace doesn't get just the people that are good in. That God's grace isn't just the ones who look nice on the outside. That God's grace isn't for the ones that are civilised already. Amen. But it's for the ones that are a mess. For the ones that are full of hate. For the ones that uh, you can't stand to be with because of the bad lifestyle choices they make. I want you to be encouraged to pray for them. Now, Pharaoh's capitulation is unsurprising in the end, isn't it? Ten plagues completely undone him in that personal tragedy at the end. And it seems extraordinary, though, that the population of Egypt doesn't just fear Israel, but it has this slant of kindness towards it. It gives, them, uh, uh, it gives them these articles of silver and gold. And there's a suggestion at their departure um, and this great journey ahead that the Egyptians heap their treasures on the Jews. It's not, they don't just uh, escape with the, uh, by the skin of their teeth, but the Egyptians send them on their way. So there's this sense that Israel has plundered Egypt, this weak tiny enslaved nation that had no hope for the future, whose uh, children were being killed so that they could not form any sort of uprising. They plunder the Egyptians. And there is such a gorgeous reversal of fortunes. This world power, this one that no one could challenge, this one that erects the, uh, uh, the pyramids and the sphinx, uh, that makes awesome tombs filled of all sorts of artifacts. They are undone and they capitulate to the Israelites. Now we live in a culture that is increasingly rejecting our morality. Our idea of right and wrong is going out the window. The uh, society has decided that uh, scripture no longer holds, that uh, whatever um, society thinks is right is going to be right. And it's kind of like a, a social contract rather than anything else. And they scorn our beliefs and our ideas. And, and that's uh, most obviously um, apparent in, in, uh, in ideas of gender and sex and marriage and identity. But there's all sorts of things that they have thrown out and abandoned and our values, like love and compassion, they're being diluted. And uh, when the world says they love something, it's almost uh, unrecognisable compared to what we think love should be. But in that hopelessness, there is hope. 
In fact, that is one of the hallmarks of God. When all seems lost, he steps up and does something incredible. If you've got a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 2. says this in Acts chapter 2 verse 46 every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts it's a bit like camp easy peasy you know just like hanging out together enjoying each other's company every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts they were in each other's lives there's no detail of someone else uh, other believer that someone didn't know it's the sort of place where sin suddenly becomes very hard to maintain because your neighbor who loves Jesus uh, is seeing you for all your warts and all you know when you get up and you're irritable your neighbor sees that and when you go at, uh, go to bed at night uh, your neighbour is there too. And so there's this wonderful community and fellowship. And so every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts and they broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Sounds awesome. And what did they do? They praised God. And in the middle of Jerusalem, this place that had hung uh, their saviour on a cross, They enjoyed the favour of the people. These Jews that had killed Jesus, that that would stone Stephen, they enjoyed the favour of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. There is an energy and a delight in those first Christians' faith. You know that wonderful uh, uh, pure momentum when someone first becomes a Christian and they just want to serve him with all that they have and they're not tired and jaded and they're not confused by a thousand different interpretations of the Bible they just know and love Jesus and want to serve him where they are and in that place if we find they have one favour we find that the people around them go these are a nice people to have around you know there are other religious guys that just make life hard work but these guys they make life easier rather than more difficult and the people around them uh, are kindly disposed to them and the people around us now may reject us for our faith they may reject us uh, for going uh, to a worship a house of worship on a Sunday morning they may reject us because of our views or on our whole myriad of different moral issues they may reject us for so many things but if we practice our faith well we will undermine their resistance when we are kind, when we are loving, when we uh, are full of the joy of the Lord, when we live out pure lives, the people see this and they can't maintain that resistance for much longer. It is true that if we live out Jesus every day, even the hardest heart may become melted. As they see, it is not a front, it is not an act, it is not something we pretend to be like, but it is a deep embedded truth and value because we have been born again, because the old life has gone and we are new creations. We have been uh, given new life by the Holy Spirit and this new life is one of purity. This is 
one of generosity, one of compassion, one of love, one of forgiveness. And they realize something has gone on in us that they need. Now, the masses may not repent. Uh, You may not see your entire workplace or entire family suddenly bow the knee to Jesus. But as we live our lives that are kind and generous and forgiving and loving, we will be given room to speak. We will be given room uh, uh, to say. We will be given room to give our testimony of how our lives are changed. And we may even, and this is a long shot, may have a voice in society and a chance to influence it where we are invited to say something. We don't have to shout everyone down, but we are invited to say something because everything else has failed. Last couple of points. One of the most striking things about the passage that we read out earlier, and indeed one of the most striking things about the entire Exodus account, is the Passover meal. This is something that is hugely important. This Exodus is to be signified by the Passover meal. This uh, uh, rescue of Israel is going to be signified by this Passover meal. And do you notice that the dough and bread to be used... They mention something about them. We find the Israels are in a rush. They're in a rush, perhaps not to get out of Egypt, to get to the place where God is. They're in a rush to find their freedom. They're in a rush to meet with the face of God. They're in a rush to hear his voice. They're in a rush to know the word of God. They're in a rush to leave behind every containment on their behavior. And so what this leads to is that the meal isn't properly leavened, isn't properly prepared. It's a half-assed meal. That is the whole point of not having leaven in the bread, not having the yeast in the bread. It's half done because they've got somewhere important to be. This is an anti-perfectionist message. This is a message against you who like everything done in a certain way. This is an undone bread. This is badly prepared. And it is a sign to the Israelites and a a reminder to them. And it tells them you've got to do this way for generations. It's not just for now. For generations you've got to make bad bread. Because you've got to remind yourself of the urgency of the situation, of the desire to where you're going. Not of where you are, but where you're going. And Israel is called to eat Passover meals for time immemorial. And we should ask, what does that mean for us today? What does it mean for us today? What is the significance of bad bread? Turn to Matthew chapter 24. says this, Matthew chapter 24, verse 42. says this, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. Everyone say, I don't know. I don't know. But understand this, 
If the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he'd have kept watch. Of course he would. If a thief's coming and you, he'd sent ahead a little letter saying, I'm going to turn up then, you'd have been ready. Torch, baseball bat, police. He would have kept watch and would not have let his house get broken into. He doesn't want his stuff nicked. So you also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Jesus promises that after his death and resurrection, he's going to come back and you don't know when. And he says, you've got no idea. Don't pretend to think you know when I'm going to return and I'm going to come back and my kingdom's going to come and this old way is going to pass Away, Peter talks about it just being destroyed in fire because a new kingdom's coming. A new beautiful rule that will just make your hearts flutter with delight. That will make your uh, mouths grin in pleasure. That will make all the former things fade out of time and memory because this new kingdom is so awesome. But the timing is unknown. The timing is like a thief in the night. All we know, it's going to be sudden and unexpected. You've got no idea. I have got no idea. I was trying to count up the number of times the uh, Jehovah's Witnesses had predicted this happening and failed. And uh, uh, um, I got to sort of 10 and then sort of uh, gave up. And uh, this is quite frequent for sort of cults and sects, you know, ah, this is when the end of the world's coming. But Jesus makes quite clear, you don't know. You've got no idea. You think you've got tomorrow. The tomorrow's not guaranteed. You think we've got camp easy peasy. We've got no idea where the camp easy peasy is guaranteed. I love that bit in James where it goes, you know what, um, uh, by the grace of God, this is going to happen. And uh, sometimes I think we need to flavour our language uh, uh, with that a bit more. You've got no idea how it's going to work out, when your Lord is going to return. And, I, and for me, this is what the Passover has for us this morning. Passover was bad bread because they were in a rush to go where God had planned for them. And this morning, there is an invitation to be ready for Jesus' return. It's interesting, I think it was last week we read it as well. You know, people scoff, oh, he hasn't come yet. We've had 2,022 years he hasn't turned up. What's the chances are we're going to make it to next year? And Jesus says, yeah, the point is you don't live like that. I have said I'm going to come, and you need to expect me to come at any moment. You need to live a life that is ready. It is a command to live with a readiness for Jesus' return. And if you knew Jesus was going to return tomorrow, wouldn't your life look different? I tell you, my life would look different uh, in my shame if I knew Jesus was going to come back tomorrow. You would live today a little differently. You probably wouldn't bother with sleep. What's the point of sleep if Jesus is going to turn up at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning? You would be getting things ready. And I tell you, you wouldn't be uh, cleaning. You wouldn't be sorting out your bank account. You wouldn't be uh, sort of upgrading your phone. You wouldn't be worried about your dress. You wouldn't be worried about anything. You would be worried about eternal matters and the matters of the soul, matters of your heart and all of those you love around you. And Jesus says, you've got to live like that. 
There is, uh, Jesus says, you know, my, my burden is light and easy, but in some ways there's a, a, a perpetual anxiousness that we are invited to seek out, where every day we go, is Jesus coming and is my life ready for him? Is he going to find a good and faithful servant or a wild living prodigal son who has got no interest in his return? And so this morning I invite you to make bad bread. This morning I invite you to make messes of your lives because you are looking for the return of Jesus. I'm inviting you to not be perfectionist in every detail of your life. In all the other ways, society judges us on what a good life looks like because we are to be ready for the return of Jesus. As our hearts prepared for the return of Jesus, and if it's not, if you would live your life differently, then Jesus says you need to sort that out because our lives are to be lived with the perpetual anticipation of his return. Are you poised for Christ's return? Then go, yes, I knew it. I'm ready. Or are you going to go, flip me, God, you should have given me some warning. Man, I just need, give me 10 days notice at least. Come on. And Christ says, no, that's the whole point. You've got to live with that perpetual excitement, anxiety uh, 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 in your hearts. And the uh, final sentence of the excerpt, I really like this. Um, I really like the other bits. Um, and I've warmed to this. I wrote this a couple of weeks ago, and I've been enjoying going through it. And, but I really like this. Um, I've got no idea why, and uh, lots of people smarter than me have got different ideas. But God has in mind exactly 430 years of slavery. Why 430 years? I'm not very clear. There are some great guesses, but it's not come explicitly through the text. God has in mind, Israel, you will be in slavery for 430 years. And the Israelites are going, why 430? Couldn't we make it a week? And uh, some of us are like, something a little bit more significant that we can sort of join the dots on. And the text today says, on the very last day, you know, like on the very point that it goes into 431, and that's probably connected with that why Pharaoh asked them in the night to come up. God extracts his people exactly at 4.30. God goes, that's the magic number. I've got no idea why. Um, there are some amazing guesses that you can explore. Um, but the text doesn't tell us explicitly, so I don't think we need to make a point of it. Um, but God, exactly at 4.30, God goes, yep, you guys are coming out now. And there's an assurance, and it happens again and again in the Bible, and I like looking out for these things, that God is minutely sensitive to time. He's minutely sensitive to time as a dimension. God may not live in time, but he is sensitive to time as a dimension that we are living in. And his plans are perfect in that dimension and every other. Turn in your Bibles to the very last reading, Galatians chapter 4. It says this, Galatians chapter 4, verse 4. Really like this. But when the set time had fully come. It's that moment, that precise uh, moment in the calendar. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son 
born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. I think that deserves a hallelujah. Can we give it a hallelujah? It's an amazing thing. Exact time God sends his son. And we get to be adopted as sons and daughters of God. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba, Father, if you're unsure of whether you're a Christian, if you feel that call in your heart, Abba, God goes, yeah, that's proof. Don't need to worry about it. Don't sweat the uh, big questions. Just know that call in your heart of Abba is me and that you are in and that your name's in the book of life, that you have an eternity in my presence. And it goes on. For you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has also made you his heir. Paul explains that exact principle of timing that we read about in the Exodus story happened with Jesus. Wouldn't it be good if Jesus was incarnate now? You know, he hadn't come and then he was sort of alive when we were here. We could follow him on Twitter and look at his Instagram feed and, and perhaps go and watch him at the Royal Albert Hall or, or something else. Uh, but God sent him exactly when he should come. 2,000 years ago, that was the very optimum moment when Jesus should have arrived. He arrived precisely in history when God ordained before history and future was even a thing, before time even existed, God had in mind that moment. And what this means is, and there's a lot of implications, each of us was chosen to believe after Jesus' arrival. Each of you who know Jesus as your saviour, you were chosen to be a believer after his arrival so you could know the fullness of the salvation. Moses and Abraham and the patriarchs, they kind of hoped and they were looking forward, you know, God, we trust you doing something. I'm not quite sure what it's going to look like. But each of you were chosen to come on this earth and know a fuller story of salvation than all these guys in the Old Testament. You were chosen right now to know this 2,000 years of, of God's faithfulness and of uh, Jesus' death and resurrection. And there is a deliberateness about your existence that you should feel assured about, that you should feel invigorated about, that should excite you and you should feel tingled uh, on the tips of your finger, that these are not accidental that God is precise in his timings and that you were brought, a bit like sort of uh, Joseph and Esther and various other ones, for such a time as this. Moses and all the other guys, David, they could only gasp, grasp whispers of the gospel. They only knew faint ideas of what it would look like. But you and I know it in its fullness. And it's amazing. And we get to sing about it and read about it and think on it and pray on it to our heart's delight. And so as I close, I want you to know that despite what you feel and despite what you think, despite all the other doubts that are rushing in your heart, God's timing is perfect. And that he makes 
uh, deliberate effort in this. He's not a random scattergun approach, but his, his timing is perfect. The Israelites were to be in prison for 430 years, and on the 430th uh, year, on the last day of that year, bang, they were released. When uh, salvation was most optimum for the whole world, Jesus came. And when the world needed a Kev and a Barbara and a Francis, that's when you uh, were brought forward by God. And we should revel in the fact that our Heavenly Father is our Abba, that he's put a spirit in us to enjoy his presence. Please bow your head. Heavenly Father, we have covered a shed load of different points. And uh, Lord God, I just lift them up and just ask for you to um, embed the right ones in people's hearts this morning. We're all uh, at different points, have different things going on in our lives. And Lord God, I just pray that you would bring home those aspects of this morning's message that uh, we need to hear most right now. Lord God, we just thank you for this Exodus story. Lord God, I thank you that it just uh, it points to Jesus again and again. And it's just something to wonder at that this story could point to Jesus in so many different ways that uh, could enrich our hearts. Lord God, um, I thank you that you saved Israel from Egypt. And Lord God, I thank you that you have saved us who believe in your name, who confess you as saviour, uh, that you have saved us from slavery and you've brought us into a freedom that we could never imagine. And Lord God, I pray that we would enjoy that place. Lord God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.